The following Dharma talk was given by Jody Hojin Kimmel at the Zen Center of New York City. Hojin Sensei is the abbot of the Zen Center and head priest at Zen Mountain Monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. And uh, welcome to those of you who are here for the first time. This is our last week of Ango, um, which is a 90-day intensive training period. So we started this in March. And um, it goes back to the time of the Buddha where um, the training is increased and we make certain commitments to our practice. And this is the last week, and then we go into our week-long silent retreat, which I'll be going to um, next week. And our study for these 90 days, which aren't just for these 90 days, um, are birth, aging, sickness, and death. And we've been, um, and, and an undivided life. And last week I spoke about the uh, my great 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 auntie Ambapali, <laughs> um, who was a Buddhist nun at the time of the Buddha, and her amazing enlightenment poem from the Taragata poem collected poems of enlightenment poems of women from the time of the Buddha, where she unflinchingly. <laughs> Um, looks at, and joyfully, may I add, describes her aging body from head to toe. She goes from head to toe. And um, what her realization was, was this empty of own being. And yet, here's this body aging. So, yes, there's something. And what is that something? empty of own being. So we looked at her life. And she, she had this refrain after each line of her poem, this is the teaching of one who speaks truth. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth, that we're aging, we're getting older. And at the end of the poem, I read something from Vimalakirti, uh, the Vimalakirti Sutra, who is responding to Manjushri, the bodhisattva of clear, bright wisdom, the bodhisattva of, of our prajna, of our clear, bright wisdom. And this Vimalakirti Sutra is a sutra that clears up um, our perceptions of emptiness as being void or, or, or kind of turning nihilistic. Like, there's nothing substantial, so... Things are, life is insignificant. We just don't pay attention. <laughs> we just don't care. Because why? It's, it's empty. But that's not, it's a misunderstanding of emptiness. And so I wanted to bring up, I went back to this, um, this uh, dialogue with Manjushri and uh, Vimalakirti uh, because. 
there were some things in it which I thought we could walk away with saying, ah, doesn't matter, life's insignificant. A bodhisattva, for those of you who are, who are new and don't know, is one who um, is in the world to help alleviate the suffering of others. We remain in our embodiment, in our situations, in our relationships, and we work towards freeing one another, giving the best goodness to each other to alleviate suffering. And I consider all of you bodhisattvas, or you wouldn't be here this morning. Something uh, brought you to the Dharma, so already there's, there's some um, bodhicitta, some aspiration of goodness that has arisen in you to show up today. So it's not like some other being. It's the one on your seat. That's the news. So the, uh, in this um, little encounter with Manjushri and, and Vimalakirti, he begins describing to Manjushri the insubstantiability insubstantiality of beings. Manjushri, a bodhisattva should regard all living beings as wise people regards the reflections of the moon and water, or as magicians regard people created by magic. They should regard them as being like a face in a mirror, like the water of a mirage, like the sound of an echo, like a mass of clouds in the sky, like the previous moment of a ball of foam, like the appearance and disappearance of a bubble of water, like the track of a bird in the sky, like dream visions seen after waking, like the perception of color in one blind from birth. Precisely thus, Manjushri, does a bodhisattva who realizes ultimate selflessness Consider all beings. So, what do these images invoke in you? All of these images, to me, invoke something is there, but it has no substantiality. Bubbles, you know. So, what kind of teaching is this? It was quite maddening to me when I heard this first, at first. Cheerless. I'm supposed to regard people like balls of foam? I mean, really, or bubbles of water? Um, Masses of clouds? Very ephemeral. Why should I even care about them if they're just a ball of foam? You're just a ball of foam. How are you doing? And if, as Buddha and Vimalakirti say, that the nature of the self of all beings are insubstantial, impermanent, fundamentally empty of own being, then why and how should we love one another? What is the role of love in Buddhism? How should we regard others? And what if... I am not the one who has realized this ultimate selflessness. And is this the result of what will happen to me with practice? I wonder, 
I wander through life seeing other people as nothing more than dreams, mirages, magic tricks, foam balls. What would this mean for my ordinary human relationships in my life? Seems a bit cheerless, doesn't it? (laughs) My whole life involves other people. They seem completely real to me, aren't they? Aren't they? What's this dude talking about? He is sick. And in the sutra, Vimalakirti is sick. So I wanted to look into how do we take up this world of not two, accepting the offer this world makes to us which is to be an unbalanced being in an unbalanced world. So Vimalakirti was a householder, a man of the world, had a wife and children, um, was alive at the time of the Buddha and said to have the realization equivalent to the Buddha, but was a lay person. And in the sutra, he is sick. He said, because we are born and we die, there is sickness. I am sick because the whole world is sick. So he embodies our darkening. It makes sense he would be sick. It's what it does when we see everything as solid and reified, and we don't understand things as they are. But when Vilamakirti speaks from his sickbed, it's with absolute, unquestioned, unbuffered, uncompromising allegiance to this world. He's in it. That's why he's sick. His illness is what he has allegiance to. He's a bodhisattva. We enter the sickness together. And in this story, it's physical illness, but it could be any kind of disease, any kind of disease that we have. Any way we're off balance, internally or with our relationships with the world. It's a tilty world. Buddha called it topsy-turvy. And we have topsy-turvy thinking on top of that. That's our sickness. It's a tilty world, but it's a pure land at the same time. It's a pure land where we are constantly rocked, rocked off center to find it again before we get knocked off again. It reminds me of trying to center a pot. You know, many of you know I'm a potter, but it's just like trying to get centered and just how easily it gets, it, in the beginning, it just gets knocked off. And you keep trying to find that center in the spinning world, the right pressures at the right, the right pressures at the right time, spinning, gravity. And you have to keep practicing so it doesn't get thrown off. And we may see the negative qualities of this offer which might be obvious, but there are positive qualities. When we enter the creative process, 
to not just look at the instability of the world as the cause of suffering and complications, we can also see it as the source of our creative response to those very difficulties. In fact, Vimalakirti lists ten good practices that come to us in this topsy-turvy world and from nowhere else. We can't get it unless we're in this topsy-turvy world. Generosity in response to poverty. Patience, forbearance in response to anger. Meditation in response to being distracted, distractedness. Charity, kind words, working for the good of others, sharing in the hardships with each other. We only get that by being in a topsy-turvy world and trying to find the center. So these are the gifts of our Saha world. (laughs) Sahas means spinning, samsaric world. Not two expresses the oneness, the unity of all things, and also the multiplicity within that oneness. My teacher used to say, you and I are the same thing. You can all probably quote this. You and I are the same thing, and I'm not you, and you're not me. And those two truths exist simultaneously. They're mutually arising. You can't separate them. In that ultimate sense, you and I are the same thing. In that foam ball, in that bubble of water, that ephemeral, absolute place, you and I are the same thing. And out of that, I'm not you and you're not me. The fabulous, miraculous multiplicity of diversity can emerge because nothing's fixed there. In the uh, Faith Mind poem, it says... All is empty, clear, self-illuminating, with no exertion of the mind's power. Here, thought, feeling, knowledge, and imagination are of no value. In this world of suchness, there is neither self nor other than self. You and I are the same thing. To come directly into harmony with this reality, just simply say when doubt arises not to. In this not to, nothing is separate, nothing is excluded, no matter when or where enlightenment means entering this truth. And this truth is beyond extension or diminution in time or space. One thing, all things move among them and intermingle without distinction. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To live in this faith is the road to non-duality, because the non-dual is one with the trusting mind. So his whole sutra is about the non-dual. So we can be noticing the infinite number of proliferations of beings, viewpoints, all the viewpoints and opinions that make up this universe. 
and want us to divide. And that way of looking at things makes us very impoverished. Vimalkirti is implying that we bodhisattvas in training not think of a bodhisattva template of perfection. that we're going to squeeze ourselves into. So we get these ideas. This is what it means to be a bodhisattva. And then we try and squeeze ourselves into that, into our idea. That's just so painful. Because we just see, like, we'll judge left and right how we're not reaching. Rather to tune into what an off-balance world invites. It needs our flexibility, our improvisation, our creativity. There are many ways to express bodhisattvaness. I don't even know if that's a word, but there are many ways to express bodhisattvaness. The sutra names them. And I used to think, oh, that's a nice collection of worlds, of jewels flowers and music. But now I feel this is very deep dharma, a deep dharma point. There isn't a bodhisattva, a particular bodhisattva. Here's some they name. There are unblinking bodhisattva, wonderful arm bodhisattva, jewel hand bodhisattva, pure emanation uh, bodhisattva, Universal Maintenance Bodhisattva, (laughs) Roots of Joy Bodhisattva, Jewel Vision Bodhisattva, Sounds of Thunder Bodhisattva, Serene Capacity Bodhisattva, Delights in the Real Bodhisattva. That's just a few. You can look in the sutra. It goes on (laughs) very long. So this is just a fraction of it. There are many different ways and and many different bodhisattvas and many different times in our life. And we can be humbled by some of the bodhisattvas we appear as. Like this week for me, fingers crossed bodhisattva. (laughs) Pretty close bodhisattva. Flying by the seat of my pants bodhisattva. Really want to hide away, bodhisattva. All kinds of bodhisattvas. Someone suggested that Shariputra acts as the universal maintenance bodhisattva, the great celestial janitor. That bodhisattva, uh, Shariputra in many of the sutras, just like the Heart Sutra we chanted this morning, is always cleaning up for us, kind of bringing out the things that we would love to ask but we don't want to look stupid. Shariputra will just ask it for us, and we're like, thank you, the janitor, right? Actually, Shariputra really keeps us connected to the actual concerns of our heart, to me, to our bottom, to our tight tummy. That's what Shariputra does. And one of the beautiful things about the vision of the uh, Mahayana school is that we human bodhisattvas are not doing this alone. We're not doing this alone. 
Everything in the world is engaged in the work of awakening. Everything. Everything has its own kind of bodhisattva. And remember, it may not look like what we think a bodhisattva should look like. There's cockroach bodhisattvas. I'm sure you know them. Gardens, towers, clothing, the body, empty space, food, 84,000 earthly desires, pretty much anything could be a bodhisattva. So we have much help with our promise to the world. A lot of help. So it makes sense Vimalakirti's sick. He is taking our endarkening, our common shared experiences of being in this world where their nature gets so complicated. The nature of things gets complicated. And remember, there are no opposites. There's only relationship. So, there's only relationship. There are no opposites. It seems that way. Not two. Where it gets complicated is also where it can get really deep and wide for us. Connected, enlarged. And we can receive that unexpected grace. Unexpected. If we have to practice, but then this we can receive that unexpected grace and we can let it in. So today we might think of this meeting and dialogue with Mandrushri and Bhimalakirti as a crucial meeting between the unconscious and the conscious or waking and dreaming life. The Manjushri in us is that flash of insight. Bam, right? Something hits us. Flash of insight. Lightning speed. Can't predict it. It's just that grace. We feel that swift sword that just cuts our complications and confusion. Just bam. And Vimalakirti would be the slower movements of our heart, the heartbeat, the inhale and the exhale of the beating heart, moving slow. He has a remarkable sickbed as he lies down in vastness, in emptiness. A remarkable sickbed as we lie down in the vastness. like a mass of clouds in the sky, like the previous moment of a ball of foam, like the appearance and disappearance of bubble of water, track of bird in the sky. We know what it's like when the mind and heart are laboring separately, right? From ourselves, from each other, the heaviness of the human heart when we're not lightened up by insight, that's what brings many of us to practice. We know these things, but our heart hasn't caught up yet. And it brings us to Zazen, where we turn around 
to just sit. Just sit and look and see and practice. And as we sit and we see and we keep releasing all the stuff stirred up, we calm our body, we calm our mind some. We can have certain kinds of meditation experiences. And insight will do what it does. It runs way ahead of the body. So we still have to slow down and make sure whatever happens that opens for us, we keep connecting it to our heart. That's painful um, in its own way because we can see things more clearly. But for the time being, we may not feel the tenderness and warmth So we might see, you know, something's not really what it is, but that tenderness and warmth, the compassion part, has to catch up. We have to suffer the discomfort until the heart catches up. If not, we become one of those champions of the way, like those people, those people, people who make us wonder or say, like, they've been practicing for 30 years and they're such a jerk. (laughs) Maybe it's a different savory expletive, but... So in regarding people as balls of foam, as bubbles, Manjushri helps us frame a question when he says to Vimalakirti, Noble sir, If a bodhisattva considers all living beings in such a way, how do they generate love towards them? So trying to get out of that cold, absolute, everything's just ephemeral, disappearing, insubstantial. Because we can jump to a very nihilistic uh, place right there, as I said, if we don't inquire about this. This may include, ha, confirmed. Living beings are quite significant after all, just as I thought. I shouldn't have any particular feeling about them. They're all just insubstantial. Maybe I shouldn't care about other people. But I think most of us are like Manjushri. We know intuitively that compassion is the nectar of life. We know that not caring cannot be right understanding cannot be right understanding. And this is how Vimalakirti responds to that. Thereby, they generate the love that is firm, its high resolve unbreakable like a diamond. The love is pure, purified in its intrinsic nature. The love that is even, its aspirations being equal of the Tathagata's love that understands reality, the Buddha's love that causes living beings to awaken from their sleep, the love that is spontaneous because it is fully enlightened spontaneously, the love that is enlightenment because it is unity of experience, the love that has no presumption because it has eliminated attachment and aversion. Big one there. The love that is never exhausted because it acknowledges voidness and selflessness, 
the love that is giving because it bestows the gift of dharma free of the tight fist of a bad teacher, the love that is effort because it takes responsibility for all living beings, the love that is wisdom because it causes attainment at the proper time, the love that is without formality because it is pure in motivation. What do you hear? People are back. People are back. <laughs> so he gives, Vilma Kurti gives us one side, balls of foam, all the insubstantial, and then people are back. He's talking about, in the balls of foam, he's talking about the understanding of a bodhisattva. And in this passage, I think he's bringing us closer to the feeling of a bodhisattva. It has to do with our emotional life, the openness and the compassion we're capable of. So Vimalakirti invokes a mature Dharma practitioner, how they actually feel or begin to feel, and how we can transform emotionally through practice as we begin to have true realizations of our ultimate unfixed, insubstantial nature. Manjushri asks, what is the quality of our emotional life? What is the quality of our feeling for people? The love that is enlightenment because it is unity of experience the love that has no presumptions because it has eliminated attachment and aversion. That line came to me out of all of it. Awakening to the insubstantiality of everything is a unity of experience that actually opens us up emotionally. Ambapali showed us that in her realization. We feel the heartbreak because we let it in. And at the same time, we know what it is also. And we could see the karma that comes out of, out of that vastness, the actions. So we don't have to go to the opposite side. If we think of something as insubstantial, you mo- we might go far away. But actually, you know, we don't distance ourselves from everyone. When we really open to that insight, it just does the opposite. It brings us so close because we see what's happening. Or as Vilma Kurti says, we feel that love has no presumptions because it has eliminated attachment and aversion. What is this detachment thing in Buddhism? We always say, don't attach. Somebody was, oh, Josephine, that's the word I was looking for, (laughs) detachment. (laughs) It sounds so cold and hard, detachment. I always thought it was. I always thought it meant distance. And this recent Lama that died, Zopa, they had on, on his on video, his sitting up, dying. I don't know if you've seen that. You can see it. 
but there was a couple quotes that he said, and this one said, um, the difference between love and attachment, this was what he said, love is wanting someone to be happy, attachment is wanting it to be me that makes them happy. (laughs) He says, true love, maitri or metta, we hear those words, means no strings attached, unselfishly wishing others to be happy, be delighted in their presence, offer our affection, doing things freely without wanting anything in return. It's kind of that sympathetic joy, the ha- you know, joyful for the happiness of others. I think that's the hardest of the four immeasurables for me personally. <laughs> okay, may all beings be free from suffering. Got it. May all beings know happiness. Got it. May I know sympathetic joy, rejoicing in the happiness of others. When I really look at it, not her. Okay, I'm I'm good with you. No, I don't want you to have that happiness. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah, that's a tough one. OG and I were walking up Atlantic Avenue at the beginning of, of spring, and you might have seen it. They have those little boxes of, and there were these tulips in there that were humongous, like this red beyond red beyond red, orange beyond orange beyond orange. And we just stood there, and the sun was shining, and they were crispy and sparkling, and they were already going as we were, cha- they were changing right there and fading. And we kind of chuckled. I was, I think we were chuckling and crying at the same time because we felt like them, you know, just like the same kind of thing happening at the same time. And to fully appreciate the blossom, to love it, we need to give up our sense of wanting it to be this certain kind of flower, to be beautiful, to want it to linger, These are our ideas and our desires. It's just that moment, that suchness of life, moment to moment. So what's your sense of detachment? Does it feel cold and hard, looking at it from that perspective? We see the tulips. Damn, wow, unbelievable. No words. And we know it's going. Not to. Not to. We look at a person. Wow. Wow. And she's going. Not to. Something is here and something's going. Can we let the flower be a flower? Can we let the person be a person? All that they did and done and do and that, us, right? Can't change it. It's in perfect accord with its place. It's not our business in some ways, but it's ours to learn to love things as they are. That goes right to the heart. That goes right to the heart when it happens. That's that unexpected grace. So, in each of us, 
Manjushri and Bhimalakirti have this grand conversation all the time. This is the conversation in us. How do we regard and love living beings, everything? How can we move and sink, even if it's at different speeds? Manjushri, when we're a little cold and dry in our making discernments, and Vimalakirti in us, our heart embracing those discernments. We want Manjushri's bright clarity, and we want the depths that seeing the nature of things brings to us in the heartfelt depths of darkness, our ultimate, unfixed, ungraspable, undefinable nature. And that will warm us up. Vimalakirti is imploring us to put down outrage, put down disappointment, and take up the impossible vow to love the world no matter what. How do you want to go? How do I want to go? That's what I want in my system. So I'm working on those nooks and crannies on my English muffin. (laughs) A bodhisattva is born not by becoming instantly and completely awake, skillful at everything, constantly giving perfect gifts to everyone. Mm -mm. It's not how a bodhisattva is born. It's simply by having the willingness a yearning intention that enters the world of birth and death for the sake of all beings. Putting that commitment at the center and then spending the rest of our lives figuring out what the hell that means. What does that mean? Provisionally and imperfectly every day. I'll let Vimalakirti have the last words. Part of our being, this is him, part of our being in this world of birth and death is getting sick. We live in a world of change and impermanence, of coming and going, rising and falling, birth and death. Because we live in that kind of world, we're constantly experiencing cycles that include arcs of growth and also of decay. Illness and the other arcs of becoming are just as natural as the arcs of healing and becoming. This is the nature of the lives we lead. Vimalakirti finishes by saying, when everyone is liberated from illness, I will be too. If the world changed and we were able to release ourselves from illness, none of us would be ill anymore. But as long as we can't, as long as we're still in the process, I'm in. You too? Thank you for listening. 
To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.